Father, we, we pray that you would help us to lift our eyes up and to behold your Son in your word as we come before you and, and to hear from you, from your word this morning, Lord. Um, Lord, we have confessed through our singing this morning that Jesus is Lord. We saw during Sunday school that you have given all authority in heaven and on earth to him. He is the Lord of lords and he is the King of all kings and and we are going to hear of his authority over us as we study his word today. Lord, um, give us humble hearts. Give us hearts that are, that are eager to have Jesus rule over us. Lord, give us a, a hatred for enslavement to sin, Lord. Um, help us to be repulsed by any any evil desire in our hearts that we would want to rule over our own lives. Lord, may we long for the rule of Christ and may we rejoice to see um, his rule extended over us in his word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. You'll remember a number of months ago we had set a box on the organ asking you all to submit any questions you had that you would like to have answered in a sermon on a Sunday morning. And we had worked through a number of those questions a few months ago and then took a break from that to, to go elsewhere in the scriptures. Um, but I wanted to get back to answering those questions. And one of your questions had to do with what does God require of us in our relationships between or our relationships which take place in the workplace. If I'm an employee, how do I relate to my employer? If I'm an employer, how do I relate to my employees? So that's, that's what we're going to look at today, and we're going to address that from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And you'll find there that the relationship that Paul speaks of is that of slaves and masters. I don't mean to communicate to you that if you're an employee, you are the slave of your employer. I don't mean to communicate that, but we're going to see principles here that apply to the workplace. All right, so that's why we're, we're going here. So let me read Ephesians 6 for us, verses 5 through 9. Paul writes, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. What does God expect of us as Christians in the workplace? How are we to conduct ourselves? We come here on a Sunday morning prepared to put our best foot forward. I don't usually look like this on a Sunday morning. Uh, don't ask my wife what I look like. But we come here and we, we talk nice and we seem happy and godly and patient and we get all dressed up and we act like everything's okay, but then Monday morning hits and we roll out of bed all grumpy, ready to bite the head off of anybody who looks at us wrong 
or who asks us to do something inconvenient or who slacks off in the workplace. Is that how the Christian life is supposed to be lived? We act one way on a Sunday and then a totally different way in the workplace. Does the Lordship of Christ only cover the ground in between these four walls? Or does his Lordship extend out into the workplace as well? In keeping with the theme that Paul began in chapter 5 of this book of Ephesians and verse 18, Paul here is continuing to explain what it looks like for certain people in certain relationships to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So when you come to know that Jesus Christ laid down his life for sinners and that he rose from the dead and that he offers you eternal salvation and you recognize your own sin and your own need for that salvation and you turn from your sin and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when that happens, not only are you forgiven, not only are you granted eternal life, but God places his Holy Spirit inside of you to enable you to live for him. And in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul commands all believers to not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but instead to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit, to be under the Spirit's control as he reveals himself in this book, the Bible. And that if, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will begin to act a certain way. And Paul describes how you will act. Verse 19, you'll speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Verse 20, you'll be always giving thanks uh, for all things in the name of the Lord. And verse 21, you will be being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then from verse 22 of chapter 5 all the way down through verse 9 of chapter 6, Paul is explaining what it looks like for you as a Christian to be subject to someone else in any kind of uh, relationship that you find yourself in. As a wife, what does that look like? As a husband, what does that look like? As a child, what does that look like? As a parent, what does that look like? And when we come to chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, Paul is letting slaves and masters know what that looks like, to be filled with the Spirit to the point of being subject to other believers. What does that look like? And again, today we're going to see Paul address that slave-master relationship. Now, thank God we do not experience institutional slavery in this country. We all know that is an institution, not only in our own more modern times, but back in Greco-Roman times, that was an institution in which sinful man could very easily use his authority over someone else to abuse and to demean that person, to deny the humanity of that person. But back then, in, in the Greco-Roman world, that institution was firmly established, and it was everywhere. In fact, there was a law proposed that, that slaves dress a certain way, and that law was struck down because the, the leaders didn't want the slaves to know how numerous they were, so that they would band together and, and, and overthrow their masters. It was that widespread. It was everywhere. It was a way of life in the Greco-Roman world. And when Paul says what he says in verses 5 through 9, that would have been a shock 
to masters and to slaves. What he instructs here would have revolutionized that relationship in a way that would have been very countercultural to the Greco-Roman world. And, of course, we don't experience this kind of relationship today. Nobody here is slave to someone else. Nobody here is master over someone else, except we are slaves to who if we trust Christ? We're slaves to Christ. He alone is our master. But just because we don't have this kind of relationship that Paul is addressing, like I said before, it doesn't mean we have nothing to learn from these verses. There are principles that Paul outlines here that will give us wisdom as to how to interact with with people in other relationships. Because whether you realize it or not, you are in a relationship with someone in which you are either under their authority or over their authority, over them in authority. We saw that in the previous relationships, husband and wife. A wife is under the authority of her husband. Children, parents. Children are under the authority of their parents. We all deal with authority. You know, uh, when we go out into the world, there's government officials over us, citizens under them. No matter where we go, who we interact with, we're going to find ourselves either submitting to authority or exercising authority. And we can learn what a Christian is supposed to act like in that relationship from principles that we see in these few verses here. Um, so let's, let's look at what Paul says first to slaves. We see that in verses 5 through 8. First, Paul addresses those in the church who, in the providence of God, find themselves to be slaves. When they were converted to Christ, they were slaves before and after. They are still slaves. These are the ones that, that Paul is addressing here. They, like every other believer, had been commanded in chapter 5, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. Just because they were a slave doesn't mean they were exempt from being filled with the Spirit. And they were to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Verse 21 of chapter 5. What was that to look like in this particular relationship of having a master? What was that to look like in their lives? Verse 5. Paul says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And we get that. If your master says to do something, Paul says, go do that. But not only were they to obey, they were to obey in a certain way. Paul continues in verse 5. They were to obey with what? Fear and trembling. What does that mean? Well, I think we can get a good sense of this by recalling an experience many of us have had You're driving down the road and you zone out a little bit and all of a sudden you look in your rearview mirror and you see the flashing lights and you pull over and your heart is beating a little faster and you see the officer step out of his car and he's dressed in a uniform, he has a badge on his chest, he has a gun strapped to his hip and he comes up to your car and you roll down the window and how do you address that person? I don't know about you, but I find myself using manners that I didn't even know I had learned before. I say, officer, what seems to be the problem? I say, yes, sir, I'll get my license for you. Hold on a minute. I say, sir, you're right, I was going too fast. If somebody else said that, I say, what are you talking about? I'm not going too fast. But I respect that person. 
Why do I respect that person? I don't know who he is. I don't know what his character is like. Why am I respecting him? If he walked up to me in the grocery store in a short and t-shirts, I wouldn't respond like that. Why do I respect him? Well, it's not so much him I respect, it's the office that he holds. That's what I respect. For slaves, the character of their earthly master was irrelevant to whether or not they were to obey that master. Peter talks about this in his first letter. If you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, First Peter chapter 2, verse 18, he says servants, and that, that word for servant, it, it meant a house slave, a slave who uh, worked in the house. That's who Peter is addressing here, house slaves. He says in verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So you see, they were to obey with respect or with fear and trembling, regardless of what their master's character was, simply because God had made that person their master. That's why they were to obey. Now, let me apply this to the workplace. As an employee, though you are not a slave, though you are not your boss's property, Yet, you have voluntarily placed yourself under his authority by entering his employment. And as long as you remain in his employment, you are to be obedient to your boss with fear and trembling. And you're to be obedient with fear and trembling regardless of what kind of boss he is. You are to be obedient with fear and trembling simply because God in his providence has made that person your boss. And so you obey him because you're obeying the God who put him over you. Do you see how that works? Now, you might obey your boss. You might even obey your boss with fear and trembling, but Paul lets us know that in and of itself is not enough. He continues in verse 5. He, he says, Obey with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers. Now, what does Paul mean by eye service? We might not be familiar with that. Well, he means the kind of obedience that is done only when the master is looking. Now, when Paul said obey with fear and trembling, some slaves would do that, but only when the master was looking. Paul says you're not to obey like that. And, and we each have experienced this. You're driving down the highway, you're going the speed limit, but then screaming past you as a car going 90 miles an hour and you just watch him just outstrip you rapidly but then all of a sudden you see him slam on the brakes why does he slam on the brakes because he sees a cop sitting in the the pull around or the, the turnaround up ahead and you'll see that guy he, he'll go the speed limit for how long just until he gets past that cop and over the next hill when he's out of sight, and then whoosh, he speeds right back up. That is eye service. He's obeying as long as the cop can see him, but once he doesn't see him anymore, all bets are off. You kids know this. 
And when your parents say you're, they're going to leave, you're going to be home alone, and, and they say, don't watch TV, you've seen enough today, while they're there, you don't even look at the TV. You, you act like it doesn't even exist. But the moment your parents leave and you hear the, the car drive down the road, you run over and you grab the remote and you turn it on. That is eye service obedience. If you're in the workplace and it's only when your boss or your supervisor is around that you put forth serious effort, that is man-pleasing eye service. And Paul is letting us know here in verse 5 that that kind of obedience is not sincere. It's not from the heart. Sincere obedience is an obedience with unmixed motives. It's an obedience without hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is behavior that masks your true self. If you're an employee who only obeys by way of our eye service, what's your mask? Hard work is the mask. Hard work is the mask you put on when the boss is around, but when the boss leaves, you take it off and you reveal your, your true self, your lazy, rebellious self. Now, I've, I've been mostly talking about laziness in the workplace, but laziness is not the only way that someone can commit the sin of obeying by way of eye service. No, you can have diligent workers as well who are men-pleasers. The hard worker might be just as much of a man-pleaser as the lazy worker. It's just that he has different goals. The lazy worker, what's his goal? Ease and comfort, right? The hard worker who is a man-pleaser, what's his goal? Selfish ambition. I'm going to work hard so I can get ahead. I so badly want to get ahead that even if my boss isn't looking, I'm going to work hard. Or you might even have good motives. I want to provide for my family. I want that so bad, I'm going to work and work and work, regardless of who's looking, so I can provide for my family. But that's a, a lesser motive than the motive that Paul is calling us to. He's calling us to obey for whose sake? For Christ's sake. He says, Obey, verse 5, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your presence in the workplace should be characterized by sincere obedience. Obedience that flows from the single-mindedness of one who recognizes that he or she is a slave of Christ. The believer should be a worker who delights to do the will of God, who delights to work hard because that's what God wants. Verse 7, Paul says, he commands slaves, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. The believer should work hard simply because that honors God. And Paul wants slaves to know that though they have many earthly lords, they have only one heavenly Lord. And that heavenly Lord is above all. And that heavenly Lord is the one to whom their ultimate allegiance is owed. They should obey for Christ's sake. And notice verse 7. Their hard work is to be done with what kind of will? Ill will? No, good will. There is to be no grumbling. There is to be no griping. There is to be no complaining, no gossiping, no 
heavy sighing when the boss tells me to do something that I don't want to do. You are to obey, desiring the good of your boss and the glory of Christ. Every task that your boss puts before you is to be done for the sake of Christ, as an act of worship, as a sacrifice done for the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship that is done begrudgingly is not worship at all. It's blasphemy. To do your work with a grumbling attitude is to say, Jesus is not worth this. He is not worth my effort. He is not worth the pain, sweat, and tears it's going to take me to do this. When your boss tells you to go and do that task you absolutely dread doing, you should tell yourself this, Jesus is worth this. Your boss probably is not worth that, but who is? Jesus is. Pray that God will give you a worshipful attitude as you carry out that menial task. Verse 7 again, on into verse 8, Paul says, With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. As Christians, we can tend to think that unless I'm a pastor or a missionary, my job really doesn't matter. God can't really use what I'm doing. It's just a waste of time what I'm doing. I wish God would take me out of this job and put me somewhere else that matters. But that's simply a lie. That's not true. Paul here is talking to slaves. These are not full-time missionaries. These are slaves. These are people doing the work that their master in the home wants them to do. And yet Paul is telling them that Jesus himself will reward them for that very work they're doing as slaves. And again, applying that to us today, whatever form of employment you are in, if you do good work for the sake of Christ, he is glorified by it, and he will reward you for it. You know, sometimes people think that the job of a pastor is just smooth sailing. It's not, but I'm not going to try to convince you of that. I'm going to go back to my previous form of employment, which was pest control. I want you to understand that I get that this is not easy. I did pest control for close to eight years for a couple different companies, and to a pampered person like myself, it was like slave labor. Customers insulting you, threatening you with bodily harm. I had one lady in Syracuse say she was going to stab me because I was treating cockroaches in her apartment. And I was telling the owner that she was not cleaning up after herself, hence why the problem wasn't getting resolved. She wanted to stab me. I was going back to the same apartment uh, with nicotine-stained walls for the fifth time to spend the whole day heating that place up, and then after that, just spilling all the water my body contained, dusting it out to try to kill all the bed bugs that were there. The fifth time I was at this place, only knowing that I would have to come back yet again because that tenant would just bring that guest that he had kept bringing each time who was bringing the bed bugs in. 
I came out of that place every time smelling like a human cigarette. Encountering roach infestations that would never improve because nobody followed my instructions to clean up the kitchen. Getting trapped in an attic with yellow jackets crawling down my boots and under my sweatshirt and stinging me. Doing my very best to kill all the gophers in this guy's yard, breaking my back to make it happen for him, only to have him call my supervisor on me to say I was doing a bad job. Spraying a house for bees, only to have the neighbor scream at me because I was going to give his dog cancer. That's just a smattering of things. Did I grumble? You bet I did. I grumbled quite a lot. But then I would repent and I would understand that I was sinning because I was saying Christ is not worth this when he is worth this. And I would ask him to help me worship him with the work, and he helped me. And part of why I continued in that profession, besides the fact that I was qualified for little else, was because I knew it was not in vain, that what I was doing mattered. If I was doing it for him, it mattered. I didn't get many pats on the back, but I knew that if it was for the Lord, if I was doing quality work for the Lord, it mattered. He was being glorified, and he would reward me. No matter what kind of work you do, whether it's in ministry or in secular employment, we are to do it as an act of worship to God for his glory and for the sake of the gospel. Did you know that your gospel witness as a Christian depends on what kind of employee you are? If I just grumbled and did a lousy job, I would not have gotten the witnessing opportunities that I did get when I was in pest control. Turn over to 1 Timothy with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy, what kind of instructions Timothy should give to slaves. 1 Timothy 6 Verse 1, he says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. A slave who was lazy would discredit the gospel. Next, go to Titus, a couple books over. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, verse 9, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Lousy work brings shame to the gospel. Quality work lends credibility to the glorious gospel that you get to proclaim to those in your workplace. So that's Paul's instructions to slaves. And don't forget, the only way that slaves can act this way is how? Verse 18, if they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the only way they can be filled with the Holy Spirit is how? If they repented of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So if you read these instructions and say, get out of here, I'm not going to do that, then you're disobeying 
the ultimate master, the Lord Jesus, who commands you to do that. And you need to examine yourself and see whether or not you have truly come to Jesus and bowed your knee before him to be your Savior and Lord. Because if you have not, you are still on your way to hell, which is where we each deserve to go. But Christ is standing with his arms open saying, Come to me, and I will give you joy in obeying my commands. In verse 9, Paul turns to masters. In Greco-Roman culture, slaves were considered property. The master-slave relationship was a one-way street. Only the slaves were accountable. The masters were largely unaccountable. They could do what they want with the slaves. Slaves were subject to the whims of their masters. If you were a slave, life could be good if you had a good master. Life could be horrible if you had a horrible master. This is why that reality of slavery in the Greco-Roman world, that is why Paul's instructions here in verse 9 are so extraordinary. Listen to what he says in verse 9. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Paul here, he tells masters what to do and what not to do. He says, do the same things to them. Who's the them he's talking about? The slaves. He says, do the same things to your slaves. What are these same things? Well, it's what he instructed the slaves to be doing. He's telling the master, you do that too. By this instruction, Paul has turned the one-way street of the slave-master relationship into a two-way street. In the church, masters were not unaccountable. They were fully accountable for how they treated their slaves. To be clear, when Paul tells masters to do the same things to their slaves, he's not calling for role reversal. He's not saying, masters, three days out of the week, you got to put the loincloth on and be a slave and you got to let your slave be the master. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he's telling masters to do what he had already commanded back in chapter 5, verse 21. Be subject to one another. And remember when we went through uh, wives and husbands, that didn't mean husband act like the wife once in a while. No, that meant for the husband, when you exercise authority, you do it in a sacrificial way, a loving way. And that's, that's, that's the idea that Paul is using when he says to masters, treat your slaves the way they are to treat you. He's talking about the attitude of the heart. He's talking about them exercising their authority in a sacrificial manner. Turn with me to a, a parallel passage, just a couple books over, Colossians, which is another place where Paul addresses slaves and masters. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul describes it like this. He says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. You see, a Christian master was not to use his authority to treat his slave like just another piece of property. He was to use his authority to treat his slave as a fellow human being created in the image of God. And if his slave was a fellow believer, that master was to treat that man or woman as a brother or sister in Christ. 
And actually, Paul spells that right out for a particular Christian master in the book of Philemon. Philemon is just one book past Titus. In that letter to Philemon, Paul is appealing to Philemon for Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus had run away from Philemon and and somehow got underneath the ministry of Paul, and Paul led Onesimus to Christ, and now Paul is sending Onesimus back to his master Philemon. And listen to what he instructs Philemon in verse 15. He says, For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, if you're an employer here this morning, I don't think it's all that difficult for you to see how you should apply this instruction to masters to yourself. If a master was to treat a slave who was considered property in this way, how much more should you consider your employees who are clearly not property in this way, with justice and fairness? with goodwill and sincerity as to the Lord rather than to men. In verse 9, Paul goes on to say what masters should stop doing. He says they should give up threatening. He's, he's basically telling them to stop doing the, the, very li- the, the lesser most form of abuse. And if he's prohibiting the the lesser form of abuse, he's prohibiting all other forms of abuse that are greater, right? He says, stop threatening. They were not to try and compel obedience through menacing words. And this is no less a shocking statement from Paul because what was probably the main tool of motivation for the Greco-Roman master? Threatening. Listen, if you don't do this, you're going to get scourged, you know? It's also a main tool for many employers today. You clean that floor or you're out of here. How can a... Well, let me back up. Paul is saying that this kind of tactic for motivating has no place in the motivational toolbox of a Christian employer. How can a Christian who claims to be a slave of Christ breathe threats against his employee when his master, the Lord Jesus, according to 1 Peter 2, verse 23, while suffering, uttered no threats. Now, is Paul saying that masters could not exercise any discipline at all? I don't think so. There's a difference, right, between warning and discipline on the one hand and threats on the other hand. Warnings are given for the benefit of the person being warned, right? Employee, listen, if you keep doing shoddy work like this, I'm going to have to let you go. I don't want to let you go because that will hurt you, but I will have to if you keep doing this. That is warning, being given for the good of the employee. Threats, on the other hand, are given for the good of the one that's threatening. It is you trying to manipulate through menace your employee to get him to do what you want him to do. Listen, you do that or you're out of here. It's purely self-focused sort of speech. 
Warnings are reasonable things to say in order to prevent harm. Threats are unreasonable things to say in order to manipulate someone into giving you what you want. So Paul says, give up threatening. And what reason does Paul give for why Christian masters should give up this unloving tactic? He says, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Christian masters needed to remember that they too were slaves, right? They too were slaves of someone, Jesus. And they would have to one day give an account to Jesus of how they treated their fellow slaves who were under their authority. King Jesus is master of both the slave and the slave master. It seems that it was a relatively common occurrence for not only a master to be slaved, but for one or more of of his slaves to be saved. Though the master and the slave occupied unequal social positions, Paul is letting masters know that before the cross, you and your slaves are on equal ground. I really like how the commentator John Eady put it when he was commenting on this verse. Listen to what he says. Quote, The master in heaven is your judge, and theirs equally, and you and they alike are responsible to him. He goes on, he says, Such an idea and prospect lodged in the mind of a Christian master would have a tendency to curb all capricious and harsh usage and lead that master to feel that really and spiritually he and his slaves were on a level, and that all this difference of social rank belonged but to an external and temporary institution. And then he asks this, could he, the master, either threaten or scourge a Christian brother with whom but the day before and at the Lord's table he had eaten of the one bread and drunk of the sacramental cup? Unquote. You see, see what he's saying there? If the day before that master and that slave were at the same table, partaking equally of the Lord's Supper, how could that master the very next day breathe out threats against that man that, or woman who was equally, accepted, equally acceptable to Christ? As we ready our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper It is important to consider the significance of the fact that all of us who have repented and believed eat at the same table. Each one of us recognize that Jesus died for each one of us equally. He rose from the dead to bring us eternal life equally. He has forgiven and cleansed us equally. He has clothed us in his righteousness equally. He has placed his spirit within us equally. He has made a home for us in his kingdom equally. We each have different roles as wives and husbands and children and parents and employees and employers, but we all have the same heavenly master. And each one of us, no matter where we are in the social scale of this world, we will each one of us have to give an account to our master for how we treated one another. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you that 
that you are a, a Savior who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Lord, you know what it's like to be wrongly treated and abused. And Lord, when we find ourselves in a workplace environment where we are being abused by an employer or taken advantage of by an employee, that's not an excuse to begin to lash out or to return evil for evil because that's not how you acted when you were mistreated. Lord, you are our example. Help us to follow you when we are mistreated. Help us to return good for evil so that we might adorn the gospel. And Lord, if anyone is here this morning who has not turned to Christ, who reads these verses and just dismisses them as stupidity because the world's wisdom teaches them that that is not how life is to be lived, Lord, may you grant them repentance and draw them to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.